Chapter 3 of Football Days This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eugene Smith Football Days by William Edwards Chapter 3 Elbow to Elbow I wonder where my shoes are. Who's got my trousers on? I wonder if the tailor mended my jersey. What's become of my headgear? I wonder if the cobbler has put new cleats on my shoes. Somebody must have my stockings on. These are too small. What's become of my ankle brace? Can't seem to find it anywhere. I just laid it down here a minute ago. I think that freshman pinched my sweater all of which is directed to no one in particular, and the trainer, who sits far off in a corner, blowing up a football for the afternoon practice, smiles as the players are fishing for their clothes. Just then the captain, who is dressed earlier than the rest, and has had two or three of the players out on the field for kicking practice, breaks in upon the scene with the remark, Don't you fellows all know you're late? You ought to be dressed long before this. Then follows the big scramble, and soon everybody's out on the field. The trainer's busy keeping his eye open for any man who's being handled too strenuously in the practice. Quick starts are practiced, individual training is indulged in. Kicking and receiving punts play an important part in the preliminary work. At Williams one afternoon, Fred Daly, former Yale captain and coach at Williams, in trying forward passes, instructed his ends to catch them at every angle and height. One man continually fumbled his attempt, just as he thought he had it sure. He was a new man to Daly, and the latter called out to him, What's your name? Back came the reply, which almost broke up the football practice for the day. Ketchum is my name. Falling on the ball is one of the fundamentals in football. It's the groundwork that every player must learn. Frank Hinkey, that great Yale captain and player, was an artist in performing this fundamental. Playing so wonderfully well the end-rush position, his alertness in falling on the ball often meant much distance for Yale. He had wonderful judgment in deciding whether to fall on the ball or pick it up. One of the most important things in football is knowing how to tackle properly. Some men take to it naturally, and others only learn after hard, strenuous practice. In the old days, men were taught to tackle by what is known as live tackling. I recall especially that earnest coach, Johnny Poe, whose main object in football coaching was to see that the men tackled hard and sure. Poe, without any padding on at all, would let the men dive into him, running at full speed, and the men would throw him in a way that seemed as though it would maim him for life. Some of the men weighed a hundred pounds more than he did, but he would get up and, with a smile, say, Come on, men, hit me harder. Knock me out next time. After the first two weeks of the season, Johnny Poe was a complete mass of black and blue marks. And yet how wonderful and how self-sacrificing he was in his eagerness to make the Princeton players good tacklers. But there are few men like Johnny Poe who are willing to sacrifice their own bodies for the instruction of others. And the next best method and one which does not injure the player so much, is tackling the dummy. 
As we look at this picture of Howard Henry of Princeton tackling the dummy, we all remember when we were back in the game, trying our very best to put our shoulder into our opponent's knees and hit him hard, throw him, and hold him. Henry always got his man. But the thrill of the game is not in tackling the dummy. The joy comes in a game when a man is coming through the line or making a long run, and you throw yourself at his knees and get your tackle, then up and ready for another. I recall an experience I had at Princeton one year. When I went to the clubhouse to get my uniform, which I wanted to wear in coaching, I asked Keen Fitzpatrick, the trainer, where my suit was. He said, It's hanging outside. I went outside of the dressing room, but could see no suit anywhere. He came out wearing a broad smile. No, he said, it isn't out here. It's out there, hanging in the air. We made a dummy out of it. And there before me, I saw my old uniform stuffed with sawdust. I looked at myself in suspense. After the men have been given the other preliminary work, they're taking to the charging board. The one shown here is used at Yale. It teaches the men quick starting and the use of their hands. It trains them to keep their eyes on the ball and impresses them with the fact that if they start before the ball is put in play, a penalty will follow. A fast charging line has its great value, and every coach is keen to have the forwards move fast to clear the way. Then, after the individual coaching is over, the team runs through signals, and the practice is on. Before very long, the head coach announces that practice is over, and the trainer yells, Everybody in on the jump! And you soon find yourself back in the dressing room. It does not take you long to get your clothes off and ready for the bath. How well some of you will recall that after a hard practice, you were content to sit and rest a while on the bench in the dressing room. It may be that in removing your clothes, you favored an injured knee, looked at a sprained ankle, or helped some fellow off with his jersey. What's finer after a day's practice than to stand beneath a warm shower and gradually let the water grow cold? Everything is lovely until some rascal in the bunch throws a cold sponge on you and slaps you across the back, or turns the cold water on when you only want hot. Then comes the dry-off and the rub-down, which seems to soothe all your bruises. This picture of Pete Ballier standing on the end of a bench, while Jack McMasters massages an injured knee, may recall to many a football player the day when the trainer was his best friend. From his wonderful physique, it's easy to believe that Ballier must have been the great center rush whom the heroes of years ago tell about. Harry Brown, that great Princeton end rush, is on the other end of the bench, being taken care of by Bill Buss, a jovial old colored attendant, who was for so many years a rubber at Princeton. I know men who never enthuse about football, but just play from a sense of college loyalty and a fear of censure should they not play, who are sorry that they were ever big or showed any football ability. College sentiment will not allow a football man to remain idle. I knew a man in college who on his way to the football field said, Oh, how I hate to drag my body down to the varsity field today to have it battered and bruised. One does not always enthuse over the hard drudgery of practice. Those that witness only the final games of the year little realize the gruesome task of preparedness. 
every football player will acknowledge that some day he has had these thoughts himself. But suddenly the day comes when this discouraged player sees a light. Perhaps he has developed a hidden power, or it may be that he has broken through and made a clean tackle behind the line. Perhaps he has made a good run and received a compliment from the coach. It may be that his side partner has given him a word of encouragement, which may have instilled in him a new spirit, and as a result he has turned out to be a real football player. He then forgets all the bruises and all the hard knocks. How true it is that in one play, or in a practice game, or in a contest against an opposing college, a player has found himself. Do you players of football remember the day you made the team, the day your chance came and you took advantage of it? At such a time, a player shows great possibilities. He's told by the captain to report at the training house for the varsity signals. Who that has experienced the thrill of that moment can ever forget it? He earns his seat at the varsity table. He is now on the varsity squad. He goes on, determined to play a better game, and realizes he must hold his place at the training table by hard, conscientious work. One is not unmindful of the traditions that are centered about the board where so many heroes of the past have sat. You have a keen realization of the fact that you are filling the seat of men who have gone before you and that you must make good as they made good. Their spirit lives. The training table is a great school for team spirit. You have a successful team, any coach will tell you. There must be a brotherly feeling among the members of the team. The men must chum together on and off the field. Teamwork on the field is made much easier if there is teamwork off the field. I never hear the expression teammates used, but I recall a certain Princeton team, the captain of which was endowed with a wonderful power of leadership. There was nothing the men would not do for him. Every man on the team regarded him as a big brother. Yet there was one man on the squad who seemed inclined to be alone. He had little to say, and when his work was over on the field, he always went silently away to his room. He did not mingle with the other players in the clubhouse after dinner, and there did not seem to be much warmth in him. Gary Cochran, the captain, took some of us into his confidence, and we made it our business to draw this fellow out of his shell. It was not long before we found that he was an entirely different sort of person from what he had seemed to be. In a short time, the fellow who was unconsciously retarding good fellowship among the members of the team was no longer a silent negative individual, but was soon urging us on in a get-together spirit. It will be impossible to relate all the good times had at a college training table. I think that every football man will agree with me that we now have a great deal of sympathy for the trainer, whereas in the old days we roasted him when it seemed that dinner would never be ready. How the hungry mob awaited the signal. The flag is down, as old Jim Robinson would say, and Arthur Poe would yell, Fellows, the hash is ready! Then the hungry crowd would scramble in for the big event of the day. There awaited them all the delicacies of a trainer's menu, the food that made touchdowns. If the service was slow, the good-natured trainer was all at fault, and he too joined in the spirit of their criticism. If the steak was especially tender, they would say it was tough. There was much juggling of the portions distributed, 
Fred Daly recalls the first week that he and Johnny Kirkpatrick were at the Yale training table. Kill called for some chocolate, and Johnny Mack, the trainer, yelled back, What do you think this is, anyway, a hospital? That started something for a while in the way of jollying. Daly recalls another incident that happened often at Yale one year. It's about Bill Goble, who certainly could put the food away. After disposing of about twelve plates of ice cream, which he had begged, borrowed, or stolen, he called one of the innocent waiters over to him and asked in a gentle voice, Say, George, what is the dessert for tonight? And there comes the good-natured joshing of the fellow who has made a fine play during the practice or in the game of the day. One or two of the fun-makers rush around, put their hands on him, and hold him tight for fear he will not be able to contain himself on account of his success of the day. This sort of jollification makes the fellow who has made a bad play forget what he might have done, and he too becomes buoyant amidst the good fellowship about him. We all realize what a modest individual the trainer is. If in a reminiscent mood to change the subject from football to himself, he tells his ever-on-to-him admirers some of his achievements in the old days. There is immediately evidence of preparedness among the players as the following salute is given, with fists beating on the table in unison. One, two, three. Oh, what a gosh darn lie! But deep in every man's heart is the keen realization of the trainer's value and his eager effort for their success. His athletic achievements and his record are well known and appreciated by all. He's the pulse of the team. The scrub team at Princeton during my last year was captained by Pop Jones, who was a martyr to the game. He was thoroughly reliable, and the spirit he instilled into his teammates helped to make our year a successful one. This picture will recall the long roll of silent heroes in the game, whose joy seemed to be in giving, men who worked their hearts out to see the varsity improve, men who never got the great rewards that come to the varsity players, but received only the thrill of doing something constructive. Their reward is in the victories of others, where every man knows that it is a great scrub that makes a great varsity. If, as you gaze at this picture of the scrub team, it stirs your memory of the fellows who used to play against you, and if, in your heart, you pay them a silent tribute, you will be giving them only their just due. To the uncrowned heroes who found no fame, the men whose hearts were strong but whose ambitions for a place on the varsity were never realized, we take off our hats. The fiercest knocks that John DeWitt's team ever had at Princeton were to practice against the scrub. It was in this year, on the last day of practice, that the undergraduates marched in a body down the field, singing and cheering, led by a band of music. Preliminary practice being over, the scrub team retired to the varsity field house to await the signal for the exhibition practice to be given on the varsity field before the undergraduates. A surprise had been promised. While the varsity team was awaiting the arrival of the scrub team, it was officially announced that the Yale team would soon arrive upon the field, and shortly after this, the scrub team appeared with white Y's sewed on the front of their jerseys. The scrub players took the Yale players' names, just as they were to play against Princeton on the coming Saturday. There was much fun and enthusiasm when the assumed Hogan would be asked to gain through Cooney, or Bloomer would make a run, 
and the make-believe Foster Rockwell would urge the pseudo-Yale team on to victory. John DeWitt had more than one encounter that afternoon with Captain Rafferty of Yale. After the practice ended, all the players gathered around the dummy, which had been very helpful in tackling practice. This had been saturated with kerosene, awaiting the final event of the day. John DeWitt touched it off with a match, and the white Y, which illuminated the chest of the dummy, was soon enveloped in flames. A college tradition had been lived up to again, and when the team returned victorious from New Haven that year, John DeWitt and his loyal teammates never forgot those men and the events that helped to make victory possible. End of chapter 3